the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, drug use, mental illness, child abuse, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. The year was 1974. Glam rock guitar riffs mingled with the weed smoke in the air as a group of teenagers passed a bong around. Each inevitable coughing fit provoked peals of laughter from the group. Everyone was having the time of their lives. Everyone, that is, except 16-year-old Marlene Olive. While her friends dished about the latest school drama, she sat at the outskirts of the circle, lost in her own thoughts. It wasn't until the conversation moved to gripes about their parents that Marlene perked up. All of a sudden, she went off on a tirade about how much she hated her mom and dad. Her friends had heard it all before and they sympathized. But this time, her rant took a turn. Marlene paused and looked around, her expression deadly serious, and told her friends, I wish someone would kill them. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll discuss Marlene Olive's troubled relationship with her mother, Naomi. We'll see how typical teenage friction mingled with a lifetime of hurt to set the stage for tragedy. Next week, we'll follow Marlene as she ropes her boyfriend, Chuck Riley, into the family drama and convinces him to do the unforgivable. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Mother-daughter conflict had plagued the Olive family long before Marlene came into the picture. In 1927, when Marlene's mother, Naomi, was just two years old, her mother was committed to a mental hospital near her home in New York. 
In the six years she was institutionalized there, Naomi was only allowed to visit her mother twice. Not only did she miss out on the chance to really get to know her mother, but from that point on, she was terrified of ending up just like her. Naomi seemed determined to create a different life for herself to ensure that never happened. And when she met Jim Olive in 1944, he seemed like he fit the bill. The couple married later that year and didn't waste any time embarking on their next chapter together. Jim was a well-to-do businessman and the newlyweds spent the next 10 years moving around the world for his work. What might have been an exciting opportunity for some people was extremely traumatic for Naomi. Without any foreign language knowledge or a desire to learn, she couldn't communicate with the people around her. She wound up without any friends or even acquaintances. As the years wore on, she became a recluse, spending her days holed up at home. These personal difficulties eventually seeped into the foundation of her marriage to Jim. The couple barely spent any time together and constantly argued whenever they did. Naomi turned to alcohol to stave off the loneliness. When that didn't work, she thought that having a baby would solve her problems. But after trying, she discovered she had fertility issues and would likely never conceive. The revelation sent her deeper into an alcohol-fueled depression. But there was hope on the horizon, and in 1958, Naomi's prayers were answered. She and Jim were back in the States, living in Norfolk, Virginia, when he happened to mention their predicament to a friend. The friend put Jim in contact with a prominent socialite whose teenage daughter had an unintended pregnancy. Adoption seemed like a win-win. So, on January 16, 1959, just one day after Marlene Olive was born, Jim and Naomi signed the adoption papers. Although Naomi had long wanted a child, when her wish came true, she came face to face with a harsh reality. Motherhood wasn't going to magically fix her problems. Her marriage was still on the rocks, and having Marlene around didn't make her feel any less alone. The truth was, she was dealing with a number of undiagnosed mental illnesses and wasn't getting the help she needed. Before we get into our discussion of Naomi's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Studies have shown that certain mood disorders can be passed down genetically, but because Naomi was so terrified of being institutionalized like her mother, she refused to speak with a doctor about how she was feeling. As a result, it seems she redirected her anxieties towards her daughter. Baby Marlene became Naomi's new excuse to never leave the house. She obsessed over the infant while neglecting almost everything else in her life. Despite all the time she spent fussing over Marlene though, she didn't really get to know her daughter. Rather than encouraging Marlene to grow and explore, Naomi fixated on her baby's health. For the first six months of her life, Naomi refused to let anyone near Marlene without a mask and diligently sanitized everything the child touched. By the time Marlene was a toddler, 
Naomi's personality had undergone some alarming changes. Before, she'd typically been shy and slow to speak on her own. Now, though, she rambled on about trivial details to the point that people grew tired of her company. Even worse, around this same time, Jim's latest business venture went belly up. When the company imploded, so did the family's life savings. Naomi developed a nervous eyebrow tick in response to the stress that stayed with her for the rest of her life. Jim was willing to do anything to bounce back. Shortly after his business failed, he was offered a new job as the marketing manager of a gas company. The catch? It was in Ecuador. To Naomi's dismay, the Olives were once again forced to uproot themselves and move to another country. Naomi didn't have a great experience in Ecuador. After making a half-hearted attempt to learn the language, she confined herself to the house once again. There, she spent her days drinking and tending to a growing collection of tropical fish. Meanwhile, she grew fearful of the world at large, convinced that everyone she met was either scamming her or gossiping behind her back. Eventually, her paranoia extended to her husband too. Unlike Naomi, Jim absolutely loved Ecuador. He had a good job, was fluent in Spanish, and quickly developed a vibrant social life. Naomi believed his frequent outings meant that he was cheating on her. Jim vehemently denied any wrongdoing, but Naomi had made up her mind. From that point on, they slept in separate bedrooms. Meanwhile, despite the difficulties, young Marlene adapted well to life in South America. She was a happy, intelligent girl, albeit a bit shy, possibly because Naomi rarely let her leave the house. When Marlene was old enough to spend time away from Naomi and go to sleepovers, she realized that her mother wasn't like most other parents. While her friends' moms were warm and comforting, Naomi was hostile and unpredictable. As she grew older, Marlene pushed back against her mother's overbearing behavior. Before long, the two were regularly getting into screaming matches. As a preteen, Marlene started to think of her mother as an unhappy, overly critical authority figure. On the other hand, Jim doted on his daughter, spoiling her with lavish gifts. And as Marlene's relationship with her mother continued to deteriorate, she started speaking to Jim in Spanish so Naomi couldn't understand them. Jim did little to repair the bond between the two of them, and as a result, they began to see themselves as rivals for his attention. And in 1969, a shocking discovery threatened to tear the family further apart. Coming up, a secret shakes the olive family tree. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when mommy dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1969, 10-year-old Marlene Olive wandered around her family's house in Ecuador, looking for something to do. As usual, her father Jim was off at work. Her mother Naomi was holed up somewhere, either drinking or caring for her fish. As she sometimes did, Marlene played in her father's study, shuffling through his file cabinet. When she fiddled around with it, something in the back of the drawer caught her eye. Curious, Marlene reached inside and retrieved a brown accordion folder. A trove of important documents were inside, diplomas, her parents' marriage certificate, and a handful of expired passports. But one paper in particular caught her eye, a document titled, In the Matter of the Adoption of an Unnamed Girl. Marlene didn't know what adoption meant, but she could tell it had something to do with her. That night at dinner, she confronted the only parents she'd ever known. Jim and Naomi had always planned on telling Marlene she was adopted, but it never seemed like the right time. Now caught off guard, they did their best to explain the concept and reassure their young daughter that they loved her. Regardless of what they said to her though, Marlene's main takeaway was that Naomi Olive wasn't her real mother. From that point onward, whenever they argued, Marlene wondered about her biological mother. Before long, she came up with a detailed story about her true origins. She imagined that she'd been ripped away from her birth mother and forced to live with a quote, crazy woman who didn't love her at all. And her anger only intensified with age. In middle school, Marlene started to resent all her mother's rules. While this is a common gripe between parents and children, Naomi took things to the extreme. Once, when Marlene left the house against her wishes, she called the militia on her daughter. To Marlene's embarrassment, she was escorted home by a detachment of mounted cavalry. Things between Marlene and Naomi continued sliding downhill until early 1973, when Jim got some shocking news. Just months shy of retiring and collecting his benefits, he lost his job. In his frantic search for a new gig, he managed to find another position in Terra Linda, California. Naomi was thrilled. She was more than ready to be back in her home country where she spoke the language. Maybe she'd even make some friends this time. But for her part, Marlene was devastated. She didn't remember America and had no desire to leave her home. 
The moment Marlene stepped foot in her new school, her worst fears were confirmed. Everything about her, from her loose-fitting clothes to her taste in music to her slight Spanish accent, made her stand out. And the fact that she started classes at the tail end of the school year didn't make it easy to connect with her peers. Her transition was made even more difficult because Jim was incredibly busy with his new job. At a time when his daughter needed him the most, he was less available to her than ever. Marlene cried every day and spent her weekends like Naomi, isolated in the house watching television for hours on end. And eventually, she worried herself sick. Since the olives arrived in Terra Linda, Marlene had been complaining about persistent stomach pains. When they didn't go away, Jim took her to a doctor who diagnosed Marlene with a duodenal ulcer. He pointed to the stress of the move as a possible cause and put her on a diet of baby food. He also prescribed a sleeping pill and a sedative to help with the pain. At 14 years old, Marlene had never been to a party without parents present, let alone done any drugs. So when she suddenly found herself with a regular supply of pills, she couldn't control herself. Before long, she was using her medications to numb herself from the pain of everyday life. She lied about her symptoms to get access to different kinds of meds. Soon, altering her mood with drugs was a part of her daily routine. In the morning, she popped an upper to get going, and at night, she took a downer to mellow out. At times, she had up to 12 prescriptions at once. For their part, Marlene's parents chalked her ever-changing behavior up to puberty. In all likelihood, they were both too distracted with their own problems to regulate their daughter's medication. Because despite her initial excitement about returning to the US, Naomi only became more reclusive in Terra Linda. With Marlene spending more time at home as well, the two circled one another like dying stars caught in each other's gravitational pull, steadily ripping themselves apart. Their arguments typically started small, with Naomi snapping at Marlene for shirking her chores and Marlene replying with sarcasm. Then the yelling would start. This went on until Marlene locked herself in the bathroom, that wasn't enough to stop the fighting though. The two continued to hurl insults at each other through the closed door. Marlene would remind Naomi she wasn't her real mother and Naomi would retort that her birth mother didn't want her. The argument would end with Naomi drowning her sorrows in scotch while Marlene sat on the bathroom floor, biting her arm until she drew blood. By the time Jim came home from work, he'd find Naomi and Marlene both exhausted on opposite sides of a locked door. He listened to their complaints and offered vague suggestions, but made little to no effort to solve the bigger issue. But even if he knew how, Jim might not have been able to fix their relationship because he was a key part of the problem. Naomi and Marlene both yearned for his sympathy, after the move, Jim had been siding with Naomi more often in an attempt to appease her or improve her mood. That infuriated Marlene. If her dad seemed to favor Naomi over her, 
Marlene felt like she'd lost her only ally. She coped by creating a fantasy life for herself. She started to write poetry and tell increasingly unbelievable lies to anyone who would listen. When she started high school that fall, Marlene had a backlog of elaborate stories she hoped would win her friends. Her tales included a secret engagement in Ecuador and snorting cocaine with her father. She even claimed to have starred in a French porno. As far-fetched as her stories were, they seemed to work. Before long, she was in with a group of girls whose primary interests were shoplifting and drugs. Although Marlene desperately wanted to fit in, she was hesitant about adding recreational drugs to her revolving roster of prescription medication. But she hadn't gotten many chances to make friends otherwise. Things quickly spiraled out of control. By the time she was 15, Marlene was doing drugs regularly, even while in school. One fall morning, her friends took some LSD before class. Marlene had never dropped acid before, but when she was handed a tab, she took it without a second thought. She had no idea her friends had given her a double dose. Marlene's experience was magical at first. Everything from the educational posters on the wall to the pencil sharpeners glowed with new beauty and meaning. She found herself euphoric for the first time in ages. But as the acid took hold, her mood took a turn. Time seemed to dissolve and existence itself became too intense. She managed to keep herself in check until the school's brunch period, when the world shattered like a broken mirror. In front of her eyes, the crowd of students melted into a single pulsating blob. Marlene suddenly felt like she couldn't breathe. She had to escape. She shoved her way to the front door and ran out onto the lawn. When she finally reached the grass, she collapsed to the ground, buried her head in her hands, and waited for the world to make sense again. At some point, a face appeared and cut through her acid-induced haze. It was a boy with warm chestnut hair and kind eyes. His name was Chuck Riley. Chuck was a good-natured 19-year-old whose interest included cars, guns, and marijuana. Although he started smoking later than his peers, he quickly surpassed them in frequency and enthusiasm. Eventually, he became a dealer too, mostly to get people to like him. Chuck had been overweight for much of his life and felt like he needed drugs to bring something to the table. On that particular day, Chuck had stopped by Tara Linda High School to visit some friends. He used to attend the school before dropping out senior year and figured it was a good place to sell some weed. But he was distracted by a scene on the front lawn he saw a group of boys taunting a girl as she sat cross-legged in the grass, her dark hair hanging like a curtain over her face. Chuck had always been a kind-hearted person. When one of his sister's rabbits gave birth, he was the one who fed the runt of the litter with an eyedropper. So when he noticed what was happening, he couldn't let it slide. He approached the girl and found out she was on her first acid trip. By the looks of it, things weren't going great. Chuck convinced the boys to leave her alone, then offered her a joint to, quote, 
level her out. When she looked up at him with wide, penetrating green eyes, Chuck felt himself melt. Although he was almost 20 years old, Chuck had never had a girlfriend. On that day, he thought Marlene was the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. He decided then and there that she was the love of his life. The only problem was, Marlene wanted nothing to do with him. Chuck tried to talk to her to get her name, anything, but Marlene was still way too high. She refused both the joint and the conversation. Eventually, her friend Deanna Krieger came to collect Marlene. Deanna let her inside, leaving Chuck to wonder who the mysterious girl was. While Chuck dreamed about seeing Marlene again, she was slowly starting to come down from her trip. Soon, she found herself at Deanna's house watching the final bloody scene of Bonnie and Clyde. When the movie was over, Deanna gave her some well-intentioned advice. She told her friend she should stop being so shy, date more boys, and have more fun. Loosen up a little. It's not clear if she was referring to Chuck specifically, but Marlene took her words to heart. In fact, she decided she wanted to change a lot about herself. Although there's no evidence that a single dose of LSD can change someone's personality, a 2009 Journal of Psychopharmacology study found that hallucinogens can intensify emotional experiences. Marlene had been worried about fitting in with her new friends for months. Coupled with her unplanned double dose of acid, this might explain why Marlene later said Deanna reached inside her and reprogrammed her in some way. So, Deanna's advice echoing in her mind, Marlene turned her rebellious behavior up to 11. Over the next few months, she adopted a wardrobe of platform shoes and halter tops, accessorized with tons of mascara and sparkly eyeshadow. To go along with her edgy new style, she started doing even more drugs. And to top it all off, she slept with several boys she carefully selected based on how much they would upset her parents. At first, Marlene liked her new persona. In their worst arguments, Naomi had implied that Marlene's birth mother was promiscuous. Now, Marlene decided she would be too. She was done holding back. Nothing was out of bounds. Coming up, Marlene makes a deadly confession. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1974, 16-year-old Marlene Olive focused on three things, sex, drugs, and provoking her adoptive mother, Naomi, as much as humanly possible. The two had been at odds for nearly a decade, but Marlene's edgy new image pushed Naomi over the edge. Their screaming matches, which were bad enough already, started ending in physical violence. As things with Naomi reached a fever pitch, Marlene's once-loving relationship with her dad frayed too. They argued about everything from the way she talked to her mother to how she dressed and the people she spent time with. In Marlene's eyes, Jim had already chosen Naomi over her. Now, she didn't just hate Naomi, she hated Jim too. And she wanted them both gone for good. 
It seems Marlene started to fantasize about killing her parents so often that she couldn't keep her thoughts to herself. She had to share them. While hanging out with a group of friends, she interrupted a lighthearted conversation to announce that she wanted her parents six feet under. Her friends were shocked by the statement, but reasoned that every teenager wants to kill their parents at some point. Besides, Marlene was known to say things for attention. Once, she told them she was a witch who could control people with her eyes. Another time, she told them a story about how her ex-boyfriend had been murdered and stuffed down a drain pipe. So her latest confession didn't throw up any new red flags. But while her friends brushed Marlene's words aside, there was someone who was dying to listen. Ever since Chuck Riley laid eyes on Marlene during her first acid trip, he couldn't stop thinking about her. He had to know more. The day after he met her, Chuck asked around about Marlene. He practiced some smooth lines in his bathroom mirror, then went back to campus to ask Marlene out. He found her in the same spot on the lawn with a group of friends. He approached and offered them some free weed to ingratiate himself. After some small talk, Chuck asked Marlene if she wanted to go to the drive-in with him. She looked him up and down. She liked that Chuck was older and gave her free drugs, but his clothes were unfashionably loose and he wasn't really her type. After sizing him up, she said she'd like to see a movie, but that she'd already invited her friend Sarah Smith over for a sleepover, so she couldn't. Chuck didn't let that deter him, offering to find Sarah a date as well. Out of excuses, Marlene reluctantly agreed. True to his word, Chuck got his friend Bill to double with them. They picked the girls up from Marlene's house where Chuck met Jim and Naomi. He even managed to make a good impression. Jim voiced his approval to Marlene and said Chuck seemed like a fine young man, a nice change from the boys Marlene normally dated. The feeling was mutual. Chuck told Marlene that her father seemed like a nice guy. At the drive-in, Marlene accepted the joints Chuck passed around, but didn't let him put his arm around her. Afterward, Chuck and Sarah went inside a jack-in-the-box to get some food for the group, leaving Marlene and Bill alone in the car. While Chuck was out of earshot, Marlene aggressively came on to Bill, admitting that she couldn't stand Chuck. Bill turned her down and told his friend about the incident later on, but Chuck didn't seem to care. Bill was shocked. Chuck was already talking about Marlene as if they were engaged or something when she claimed that she didn't even like him. Their first date set the tone for Chuck and Marlene's entire relationship. Chuck followed Marlene around like a lovesick puppy while she gave him nothing but mixed signals. It was a toxic mix. Marlene became even more of a wild child over the next few months, with Chuck doing everything he could to get on her good side. He bought her flowers, expensive gifts, and provided her with an endless supply of drugs. He even lost 60 pounds and changed up his wardrobe to match her tastes. These overtures seemed to do little more than annoy Marlene, however. She openly dated other boys and avoided Chuck in public, 
but he refused to give up. He couldn't help himself. He started to wonder if Marlene really was a witch who'd cast a spell over him. For her part, Marlene actively encouraged these ideas. Chuck hung around Marlene through the end of the year, and in early 1975, it looked like his persistence finally paid off. One night, when Chuck was driving Marlene home from a friend's house, she suddenly unzipped his pants and started fondling him. Chuck was reportedly shocked, elated, and given the fact that he was operating a moving vehicle, a little afraid. The danger of it thrilled Marlene. It's not clear why she finally decided to give Chuck a chance, but the next day, they slept together for the first time. From that point on, they had sex almost daily. Marlene had never been with a guy who was less experienced than she was, and Chuck happily let her take the lead in the bedroom. Together, they explored her fantasies, however dark and death-obsessed they were. Marlene got into sadomasochism and made Chuck act out elaborate rape fantasies involving props and wardrobe. She carved her initials into his back after they finished, and once even incorporated the barrel of his loaded gun into sex. The stakes were higher than ever for Chuck. If Marlene thought she had him wrapped around her figure before, it was nothing compared to his devotion now. And Marlene was raring to put him to the test. Her taste in clothing and jewelry had become even more extravagant, and she demanded that Chuck spoil her. Since he didn't have an endless supply of cash, he got creative. He started to organize bigger drug deals, selling inferior weed and cutting his cocaine with speed to increase profit margins. When that wasn't enough to cover the cost of Marlene, he borrowed money from friends, knowing full well that he couldn't pay them back. Before long, he was burning bridges left and right. Chuck's friends told him Marlene was using him, but he just brushed them off. If she was using him, he didn't care. He'd let her. Despite her hot and cold demeanor, there must have been a part of Marlene that cared for Chuck too. He doted on her like her dad used to. It's possible that she was using Chuck as a proxy for her father. And although Naomi's abuse was easier to identify, it's worth noting that Jim also played a role in encouraging Marlene's unhealthy behavior. By setting up a situation where Marlene had to compete with Naomi for his affection, he engaged in what psychologists call emotional incest. This is when a parent essentially treats their child as their spouse. By blurring the line between parent and child, Jim inadvertently led Marlene to seek out relationships with men like him. And Chuck was more than happy to oblige. Marlene seemed to enjoy Chuck's devotion. While she also pitied him for it, that didn't stop her from punishing him if he didn't live up to her expectations, no matter how illegal they were. By March of 1975, Chuck and Marlene had developed quite the shoplifting habit. Initially, Marlene started stealing for the challenge of it. Even when Chuck offered to buy her what she wanted, she refused. 
and if he didn't participate, she found a way to rope him in anyway, slipping stolen items into his pockets. Eventually, Chuck stopped resisting, going from unwitting accomplice to partner in crime. They started small with things like scarves, makeup, and perfume, before moving to bigger ticket items like luxury clothing, jewelry, and shoes. Eventually, Marlene would brazenly tell Chuck what she wanted, and he would grab the item and carry it out of the store. Over the course of a month, the two amassed over $6,000 worth of stolen merchandise. Then one day, they pushed their luck too far. On March 26, they spent the morning shoplifting at their local mall. After grabbing a few items, they headed out, but there were still a couple of things that Marlene had her eye on, so they drove back a few hours later. When Chuck returned to the car with the stolen items a second time, two security guards apprehended him. Chuck, now 20 years old, was booked in the San Marin County Jail and charged with grand larceny. He spent the night behind bars and was released once a trial was set for mid-July. As a minor, Marlene's experience was a bit different. She was taken to the Marin County Juvenile Hall and assigned a probation officer to figure out the best course of action. When Officer Nancy Boggs heard about Marlene's home life and relationship with her mom, she was alarmed. Her fears were confirmed once she actually met Naomi, who was loud and hostile from the get-go. Officer Boggs noted that Naomi was possibly an alcoholic and recommended that Marlene remain at the juvenile hall until her trial. Jim agreed with Officer Boggs and allowed Marlene to stay in juvie. But five days in, Marlene begged him to take her home and, as always, he caved to his daughter's wishes. At Marlene's hearing a few weeks later, she seemed profoundly affected by the ordeal. She sobbed and apologized to her mother, promising to change. Through her tears, she told Naomi, I want to have a real family. I want us to get along. Instead of sympathizing with her daughter, Naomi glared at her and claimed she couldn't trust her. She reportedly called Marlene a slob and a streetwalker, then chastised her for airing their family's dirty laundry. After the hearing, Officer Boggs requested to be moved off the case. She already had enough on her plate and she could tell that the Olives were in for a quote, classic blow-up situation. She couldn't have known how right she was. In three months' time, Marlene would finally get her darkest wish. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part two of The Barbecue Murders, where we cover the grisly conclusion to the years of hostility in the Olive household. For more information on Marlene Olive and Chuck Riley, amongst the many sources we used, we found Bad Blood, a family murder in Marin County by Richard M. Levine, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, 
Carly Madden and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Haley Milligan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this Parcast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify.